LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Adkins. And today I am here with Abe Joe. Uh, he is the senior pastor of Redeemer Eastside in New York. Um, most of us are familiar with that church uh, and the legacy that it has. And uh, we got to talk a little bit about uh, the, I don't know what you would call that area of the country. I'm still, I mean, Washington, D.C. is no New York, but I still want people to wake up with a sense of urgency in Nashville sometimes, having lived uh, having lived in D.C. But uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I grew up for the most part in the Northeast, um, Connecticut for the most part, went to college up here. Uh, never really lived in a city until after seminary. Uh, it was in Boston, which was kind of a great transition and really great city and also very doable in many respects. And so when we moved to New York, we had no idea that whether we were called or effective to um, effective in uh, urban ministry. Uh, New York is, I mean, at least in America, there's certainly no other place like it. And so there was a whole new level of intensity and people and all of that. Uh, but now we've been here for almost 13 years. And um, I think to our surprise, and I think God's just kindness to us, we've really been flourishing both as a family um, and also in ministry, which um, has been a genuine surprise for us. So uh, we see ourselves here in New York kind of more on the span of decades than years, at least in our mental planning. So uh, talk a, a little bit about, you know, from a, a contextual element. I mean, you know, we know there's a, an urbanization of not just America, of the planet, really, and people are flocking to cities. I know one of the things that you guys are known for is being open uh, and, and welcoming, welcoming skeptics. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is that? How do you believe um, what you are currently experiencing may, I don't know, be an indicator of what is to come for, for a lot of us? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is um, I would say within the last maybe four or five years, uh, well, let me back up, you know, Redeemer, uh, part of because of the strength of the giftings of Tim Keller, who was our founding founding pastor, uh, very much grew into, um, you know, the way I put it is kind of like the best church in New York City to bring a secular friend to. And uh, of course, God really blessed that. And uh, we've seen lots of people come to faith through that. But in the last four or five years, as I've just seen the ongoing trend of secularization, I think when Redeemer started, most people had this category of, oh, I haven't been to church in a while. Maybe I should go back. I feel kind of bad, but I don't really want to. And so the notion of going to church or being invited to church, for the most part, had some positive connotation associated with that. Uh, for a lot of people, of course, it was very negative, but for many, it was like, oh yeah, that just kind of dropped off, didn't it? And um, there was kind of an openness. In the last four or five years, though, we've seen that that invitation, hey, would you want to come to church with me on a Sunday? For many people, feels very foreign. Uh, there's a cultural distance there that has opened up that um, you know made us start to realize actually a uh, worship service centered approach to reaching our culture may not be 
the way to go anymore. That it there's a huge a number of cultural barriers that somebody has to get to get through it in order to even enter into a church. And so, uh, somebody once said, like these days, especially in cities like New York, an invitation to come to church is actually not all that different from how you might feel if a friend of yours invited you to come to mosque with them. So there's all kinds of unknowns and intimidation factor and discomfort and that sort of a thing. And so as we think about where we are now, uh, you know, one of the main things on my mind and in the mind of our staff and leadership as we think about continuing to do ministry in New York City is the question of how do we actually form Christians to be everyday missionaries so that the place of gospel ministry is actually in the everyday spaces and places of their lives. Uh, it's in their kitchen, it's in their offices, it's on their uh, street block, as opposed to people thinking of the place of ministry maybe being a sanctuary. Uh, those are questions that we're just beginning to wrestle with um, that I do feel like, to me, feels like a significant change. And so in conversations with uh, you know Tim Keller over the years, you know, he would say there was a time where everybody had at least the dots in their mind, you know, God, sin, redemption, forgiveness, they at least had the dots in their mind. And so conversion was connecting the dots for people. Uh, but he's saying these days, what do you do when people don't even have those dots in their mind? Those aren't categories that people view the world with. So the task of reaching very secular people with the gospel has a lot more I don't know, prelude to it, has a lot more on-ramp to it, requires a lot more relational authenticity in the everyday places of life before you're going to get to a place where you're having meaningful conversations about these topics. Well, I, I appreciate you, you know, coming on and immediately saying, hey, this is what we're seeing. Um, we don't have it figured mm -hmm. out. <laughs> we're just getting started. But are there any early successes that that you've kind of seen in that, um, you know, is it a, a case of, Hey, we have to invite people into our lives before we invite them to church. Um, is there any, you know, is there anything that's kind of stuck or, or beginning to work so far? Yeah, we're just getting started. And so that, you know, if you sensed from me, the sense of like, we don't really know what we're doing is because we genuinely don't. And so, you know, as I talked to our, <laughs> as I talked to our, our leadership staff and others, and, you know, being at a church like Redeemer, that's an uncomfortable place to be in. I think a lot of times people see us as leaders, see us as people who know we're doing, we kind of are looked to as models in lots of different ways. And, you know, for good reason, God has really blessed what Tim and Redeemer has done. Uh, so it's uncomfortable, though, though, for us to be in a place where we're kind of admitting very broadly, hey, we don't know really what we're doing here. And so we have to take a posture of learning and listening and being aware of the fa fact that there may be new approaches that we have to be willing to respond to or being experiment with, fail at. Uh, so that's a very, very new thing uh, for us as a staff and as a culture as a whole. And so we're very early on. But I would say, you know, one thing that I am seeing is um, as we looked at our congregation, and I think every congregation has some version of this, uh, there's usually a small, small subset of people in a congregation that are um, kind of innovator types. And so these are the folks who, you know, if you have a community group system, they might lead a community group, but it just feels kind of um, 
claustrophobic for them. They, they want to try new things. They want to get out there and start things and they're entrepreneurial in nature. And it just feels like a very confined space for them to do something as clearly defined a role as community group leader. And, um, a lot of times these folks can get frustrated within the structures of a church or the roles within a church. Um, so oftentimes they get less engaged in leadership because they would rather be doing things, you know, out in the world or whatever the case might be. And a lot of times these folks are the ones that not only can get frustrated in the church, but also kind of feel like they're going rogue. They kind of feel like they're doing things. Am I causing trouble in this church? Am I, what is, what do the leadership think about me? And those kinds of things. And we realize that those people are actually the folks who already just by the gifting of the spirit or by temperament or a combination of all that already are sensing the sense that actually our lives out in our everyday places of our life have to look different. That mission has to be a lifestyle that we can't wait for institutional church or institutional leadership to start a program in order for us to be engaging with our friends that are in our lives. And so one of the things that we did was we tried to identify those folks within our congregation and basically pull them together and say, Hey, we're realizing that the kinds of things that you've been doing already are the kinds of things that we actually need to see everybody start doing. And we don't know how to do this. And we know in many respects, as you've done this, there's been a frustration. You feel like the church doesn't see you doing these things. There's no sense of support. You kind of feel guilty that you're not ushering on a Sunday because you're doing all this other more kind of evangelistic or missional ministries. And, uh, you know, we gathered them, said, we don't, we, we need to figure out how do we support people like you? How do we equip you to really help you focus your ministry to go deep uh, with a handful of people in your lives who don't believe in Jesus? And so that's where we started. Um, and so we started a group where we were just working through what does it look like for people to begin to adopt this kind of missionary mindset wherever they go where they see the primary place of ministry again in the everyday place of their life and not in the church where the pastor is preaching, where, you know, there's a sanctuary and all the chairs are set facing forward and that sort of thing. Um, and so that we've seen some initial encouraging signs there where this group, as we've gotten together, the people within the group feel encouraged. They're spurring one another on there's sharing of ideas. There's, um, one key piece is helping people to really focus their energy. So rather than going broad in lots of different contexts to really just focus in on one area where you feel like this is a place that God is asking me to incarnate Jesus. And in. so it might be your building or it might be your offices or it might be your PTA or your kid's soccer team or whatever, but just one place where I feel like God is sending is, me and how can I be faithfully present there? It is really interesting. Uh, a couple of things I'm, I would love to, to comment on. One, I do think that we see this already in society where you would have larger events are now being usurped by smaller events. Mm -hmm. Larger groups are being uh, usurped for smaller niche mm -hmm. groups. Um, and, and even from an identity perspective, people, you know, finding some identity, at least with, within those groups and those uh, things. But... Uh, Moving back from that, I can remember um, as an executive pastor, I was always a, in God we trust, everyone else must bring data. <laughs> so we did lots of surveys and, um, I mean, you know, surveyed the whole congregation mm. every year, different things like that. And um, <clears throat> the interesting thing to me, and we did it in a service, so we made sure everybody responded. Um, but the interesting thing to me was there were things that we thought 
um, mm. were true that were not actually mm. true. Like what was the stickiest parts of our church? It wasn't mm. preaching. Uh, it was actually mm. our groups. And we thought, oh, well, people come through the front door and then they get into a group. Well, actually, right. um, it, it didn't quite flip uh, during this time, but it, it came close to where you would have almost as many people enter the church through a small group as enter a small group mm. through the church. And by that, I mean, there were three distinct areas where you would see some of these rogue people uh, going out and do the, doing these things. Now, some were sanctioned by the church and some weren't. But this was um, things like sports um, uh, was was one big one. Um, serving was another. We, we had um, several things several times a year where, you know, we as a church were serving uh, the city in some way. And, you know, that might be backpacks at, uh, at different schools. And at the same time, you know, we're doing a cleanup and handing out backpacks. Well, that's an easy uh, entry point to um, a non-believer or somebody hasn't, you know, even thinking about church to say, Hey, do you want to go with me and clean up the school? And, you know, uh, would you like to donate a backpack uh, full of school supplies and, you know, all that. And, and um, but it's not just, Hey, I want your right. money. Uh, it is, or, or donate to, you know, my kids thing, that kind of a thing. It is, Hey, come with me and, and go do this. We would see tons of people uh, be introduced to because I'm introducing you to my friends. You're serving alongside my friends. And ultimately, you know, if we're all in a group together and you like us and see that we're normal and you enjoyed that, then, you know, you're a lot more open to the invitation. Um, and uh, there was one other element because we had regional communities and those were basically mm -hmm. big parties. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, that happened uh, monthly and, you know, they were two hours of uh, interaction of just fun of, you know, normal people having a good time uh, to about five to 10 minutes of that would be, hey, most of you guys are in a group here. Um, here's some of the things that we're doing. Uh, you know, John here is going to tell you about one of the ways that you can get involved in our neighborhood here. And you know, he would talk about the after school program that all these people are doing. And it was basically almost there was a serving piece and uh, a serving component, announcement component, whatever. But it was all geared toward, you know, engaging either people that were in groups in these opportunities or the people that just showed up because they got invited by right. people in a group. Um, so those things um, we actually started to be more intentional mm. with. Uh, once we found out, oh, we thought people came to church and then got into a group and we've been, you know, orchestrating this uh, process and trying to measure this process when meanwhile, um, people were more open to uh, coming into somebody's life uh, first before coming. Right. Into their church. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, you go back to your earlier comments about that kind of niche, smaller community. Yeah, I think our culture is rightfully and understandably, look, understandably looking for like genuine, authentic connection. So a place of genuine belonging. And the larger it gets, the kind of more artificial it can seem. It can feel programmatic and that sort of thing. Whereas right. um, when, you, when you come across a community that where people feel like they genuinely like each other and they've opened up, they've, they've simply just opened up their life to you. 
and they've kind of brought you into their personal life. And as they bring you into your life, you slowly start to realize, oh, this person, Jesus, you know, features pretty large in this person's life. Like when something hard happens, Jesus is really where they go to, to draw strength or whatever, or what motivates them to go out there and pack that backpack. It's Jesus. And so it's kind of seeing somebody's life opened up in just a very, you know, genuine way, warts and all that naturally they start to see that this Jesus is not just a set of religious beliefs, but it's really a a living person uh, in this person's life. And it's creating a life that I can't quite explain, a life that's clearly on mission for others uh, and that sort of thing. And so I think it was Leslie Newbegin who said that, you know, in the modern age, it's going to be the best place for evangelism is when two people are standing shoulder to shoulder trying to accomplish the same task. And one person asks the other, so why are you doing this? Uh, That's going to be some of the best places to be able to um, share faith. Absolutely. All right. Well, a we should probably start getting into our five questions now because we're you know (laughs) sounds good. Uh, (laughs) So uh, this is one of my favorite questions to Mm. ask anybody, and that is, who are you currently learning Mm. from? first person that comes to mind uh, is Alan Hirsch. So he actually, we've had him uh, in residence at Redeemer City to City, which is our sister organization that helps plant churches. And he's a missiologist. He's somebody who's given his life to um, studying movements. So his probably his most famous book is The Forgotten Ways, but he's just prolific as far as uh, his output. But he's been in residence with us and I've been learning so much from him around issues of how do you reach people in an increasingly secular environment? And how do you help churches recapture the movement dynamics that you see in the early church or the movement dynamics that you see uh, in the persecuted church in China, the house church movement, or those dynamics that you see in sub-Saharan Africa where the church is growing and it's impossible you know, for leaders to kind of keep up with that. And so he's just asking the question, what are the conditions that are necessary for movements to emerge? And what are we doing in the West that's stifling those conditions? And so he just raises all kinds of questions that challenge all kinds of thinking for me. Uh, And it's really been instrumental in leading me to think a lot more about the everyday Christian is the key to the movement. You can't scale a movement with just a handful of highly trained leaders. Uh, you need everyday spirit-filled Christians who are activated to live out life, mission as a lifestyle. And so he's really helped me to kind of uh, focus a lot more of my attention on trying to figure that piece out. So he's the first person that comes to mind. Um, I'm just about done reading W.E.B. Du Bois's um, The Souls of Black Folks. It was my first time actually reading it, uh, which was long overdue. Uh, And there's so much in there. He talks about the double consciousness of African-Americans in America. I think, and that was a concept that I heard before, but what was really eye open to me, he talks about the veil of the color line where for African-American and even back when he was writing that there's a sense in which there's black life that lives underneath the veil. And then when they cross over that veil, they enter into uh, basically the white world where all kinds of things are possible, where all these doors open up and yet most of their life is lived under the veil. And so for me, it was just, uh, you know, I always tell people that even as an Asian American, I can't understand my experience as a minority here in America if I don't 
understand the black experience that the black experience in America is kind of paradigmatic for all racialized America. Okay. You're, you're going to have to break that down, uh, for our listeners, because I think that's, uh, that's something that's, um, at least unique. I haven't, I haven't heard anybody say that before. Okay. So the, uh, the notion of understanding the black experience. Yeah, that you can't understand your experience unless you understand. Yeah, that great. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> so for me as an ethnic minority, so I'm Korean American, uh, my experience in America is largely an immigrant experience. My parents came here. I had my own experiences of feeling like I never quite fit into America. I never fight, quite fit into a Korean culture. So I always lived in kind of this hyphenated world of one foot in both worlds, but belonging in neither. And for most of my life, I sought to simply understand that experience just from my own perspective or other Asian Americans and that sort of thing. I'd say it's probably within the last five to 10 years where I realized that, you know, my coming into America, I didn't come into a blank slate society. Uh, I came into a society that's been sedimented with a history. Uh, and that history, you know, right from day one had racialized components. So, you know, it's 2019, it's the 400 year uh, remembrance of 1619 when the first black African slaves were brought to this continent. So that black white racial divide uh, has been in the mix in the American consciousness and American history right from day one. And so therefore any experience of ethnic difference is always going to be framed by that first experience. It's always framed by the experience of uh, basically blackness in America. And uh, for me, as I've pushed myself to read a lot more about African-American history, talk a lot more and listen to um, African-American friends as they share, it's helping me to understand that, okay, this is an entire society formed by this and this is the society into which my family immigrated. And so that larger context, I think, has been hugely helpful to help me understand as an Asian American, all the structures and institutions of this society are sedimented from that black experience. And I'm entering into that midstream. I don't know if that helps clarify. No, that's good. That's good. Um, okay. I want to move us now to our second question, which is what obstacles are you currently facing? What's the, what's the main point of emphasis mm. with your team right now? Yeah, I think um, figuring out that notion of how do we form everyday missionaries to live out the gospel, to open up their lives to people who don't believe in a genuine way for that everyday missionaries to be formed as kind of a, a part of the just routine course of what we do uh, at Redeemer, that that's how we're going to be reaching new people with the gospel. That's probably the biggest challenge. Um, yeah, I think up until now, one of the ways that I would put it is uh, I saw this diagram that had like a series of S curves. I don't know if I can do this just with audio, but a series of S curves uh, that are kind of laid out over time. And at the very beginning of one of the S curves is like, there's this new dream. It's the beginning of a venture. And as you move along it, that dream becomes a reality, starts to grow. And then it hits the top where it kind of hits maturity. So that's kind of the S shape. And at that point of maturity, if you continue to do what you've been doing, you'll probably start to hit a path of decline, kind of a dotted line of decline and maybe into death. 
But then when you hit to the top of that S curve, where you hit maturity, the challenge is you need a new dream. So you're leaping off of the top of that S curve onto the next S curve, where you're going to go through a new dream and a new growth and a new maturity. Um, when I look at myself as a leader, I find myself having inherited a situation where we were at the top of the S curve at Redeemer. You know, we were, you know, the best church to bring your secular friend to in New York city. Uh, but we also knew that what got us here at some level ain't going to get us there because we've kind of hit that steady state place of maturity. And of course, and none of us are Tim Keller, right? That's just a reality to look in the eye. <laughs> and, um, and as I, thought about our future, really the challenge was I need to figure out what that next S curve is. And I really do believe it's forming these everyday missionaries. So that really is going to be the strategy that will take us into our next chapter. And that for me as a leader, then I have to figure out how do I help people to make this leap off of a very safe, successful S, uh, S curve and to leap into the unknown onto a new S curve. Uh, so that to me has been my biggest personal challenge in leadership right now. Uh, a lot of it is personal. You know, I ask myself the question, am I the kind of leader that can make a leap? I guess it remains to be seen that this is part of the work that God is doing in my heart as a leader. Am I the kind of leader that can help others to make this leap with me because they see the vision of what God has laid before us? Uh, at some level, that remains to be seen as well. And so I think at the heart of it is this flip from going to this great church that people bring their friends to, to becoming kind of a movement of everyday missionaries. That's probably the biggest emphasis for our leadership team right now. But built into that is the heart of this challenge that I feel existentially and personally uh, about making this leap. Um, and can you do that? And can you lead others in doing the same? Hmm. You know, what's interesting is you think about... Um, different great awakenings that have happened, uh, you know, throughout the course of history. And you almost wonder, is this just a sick, is this, is what we're experiencing basically part of that cycle that's happened again and again and again? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it may have looked different, um, hundred, 200 years ago than it does now. Of course, um, there's with modern, everything fill in the blank. However, from a human experience standpoint and even a church standpoint, I'm interested to know, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it really all does come back to disciples, making disciples, right. making disciples. And, um, you know, there's, a, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. It's actually a Jewish, uh, rabbi wrote, um, originally wrote about cut flower culture. Are you familiar with that concept? Oh, no. Okay. So it was, it was originally about Europe and I would say it's about, you know, denominations and fill in the blank, what we're kind of experiencing now where he said, Hey, uh, in Europe, you're experiencing a cut flower culture. The values of the European culture are actually rooted within the Judeo Christian ethic. Right. And, um, Eventually, and that 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 flower has now been cut, and right. eventually, the um, you know is now obviously cut off off from the roots, the the nutrients, everything that you know made those things uh, normative and 
uh, it was shared acceptance. These were shared values within the culture. Right. And, and so, you know, in some ways, I do think that we live in a, and that's Europe is one thing. When you look at America, we say, oh, you know, we're trying not to go the way of Europe. Uh, but in, in some ways, I think part of it is the, the way that we have um, modernized and weaponized. Uh, and this is going to sound weird because people that listen to the podcast know that I'm a systems and process guy, big time. Mm. Um, but to a certain extent, the church growth movement really shifted the, the, the finish line to be baptism instead of making it the starting line. And, and, uh, people that listen to the podcast again, will know, they've heard me say, Hey, the fruit of a disciple is another disciple. The fruit of a volunteer is another volunteer. The fruit of a leader is another leader. It is not the, the staff's job, you know, to, to do these things, but the democratization of discipleship and development to everyone within the church has been, has been lost. And we did move from, you know, smaller classes and smaller things to even in, in our churches, you know, you have the master teacher concept, even in a classroom. Right. Um, so I'm curious if, if this is something, you know, if you went back a couple hundred years uh, and, and saw after one great awakening, Sure, the churches were nowhere near the size they are now, um, but did they kind of rest for a generation or two on the the nutrients, uh, the fumes or the whatever of, of the past? Because as yeah. you were pointing out earlier in the conversation, what's making me think of, about this is, you know, when you said, um, Tim Keller said, hey, everybody used to come with, with the dots and you just had mm -hmm. to connect the dots. Um, have we right. relied on that, you know, for too long to do church the way we do it? Because Redeemer would, would by nobody would call it a, a, a seeker church or a, uh, well, they might call it a, a attractional model. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, that's what I think most of our churches have become. Even those that say, oh, we're, you know, expository preaching or we're, fill in the blank. Uh, I think yeah. um, to a certain extent that may be, that may be what we've kind of become. And I'm thinking out loud, so please feel free. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, what's been interesting is that I would say Redeemer certainly in its early days or even first half of his history was not an attractional church. I think there was a lot of mission, missiology, kind of discipling and that sort of thing in those earliest days. But at some level, it kind of became a victim of its own success, where the easiest way and fastest way to grow the church was just to get a guy as gifted as Tim Keller in front of as many people as you can. Um, and so that became the easiest way. And so you start to kind of rely on that because, oh, hey, look, it's working. All those other things that we try don't work as well, but man, this really works. And so you can kind of coast on the fumes of that for quite some time. Um, and even as I think about, you know, disciples making disciples, making disciples, cause I do think we, there needs to be a return to that, a recovery of that as really at, at um, kind of the forefront of our minds as church leaders. Um, that's not a fast way to grow a church. It is a slow way to grow a movement. 
it's the way that the early church is a great book called the patient ferment of the early church. It's, it's the kind of patient ferment that we see in the early church that does lead to these explosive movement dynamics. Uh, but it's just not a fast way to grow a church. And so I think a lot of times you can become a victim of your own success. Uh, and as you kind of rest on what the easiest way to see the results are, you can lose what the actual engine of growth or the engine of uh, how the kingdom moves forward just in the ordinary, everyday acts of love and obedience of every single Christian. And then you also kind of start to convey to the average Christian that, you know, ministry is something that you leave for the professionals. You could never, mm. you could never explain to your friend over lunch, uh, you know, case for Christianity in the same way that Tim Keller could on a Sunday. And so you, without intent, unintentionally, you know, you kind of slowly, take the ministry out of the people's hands and you put it into the hands of the professionals. And the challenge is almost how do you give God's ministry back to God's people? And how do you pastors, we start to see ourselves as uh, actually coming in behind and supporting and equipping God's people for ministry, not the people supporting and being there for me, for my ministry. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot of that that goes on and it happens very, very quickly. Uh, and it happens very imperceptibly in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, the five questions are meant to steer me back from uh, running rabbits. And in some <laughs> cases, I think our listeners want me to run more rabbits and some listeners want me to stick to the five questions. So I'll try to honor both and do both well. Um, right. Let's look at the third question, which is what's one or two things that you have to do daily other than spiritual disciplines in order to stay uh, sharp as a leader? Mm. Um, I don't know that this is a specific task per se, but my days are um, fairly regimented. So everybody on my staff knows this. All of my elders know this. My family knows this. Uh, but basically every morning, Monday through Friday, Saturday is my day off of the family, but Monday through Friday and Sunday morning, every morning, you know, Monday through Friday, let's call it from 8.30 to 11.30 is I'm not available, doors closed. And so that time is my um, sermon prep time, study time every single morning. So my staff knows that if they email me or call me or knock on my door, I'm not, you're not going to get a response from me during those times. Uh, so I don't know again, if that's a task, but that's kind of a part of the daily rhythm that for me has become oh, a must do. Yeah. Where that morning time I think is my sharpest time. It's my most creative time. And so I'm trying to dedicate it to, uh, you know, the most important or most essential tasks that I've been given and that's going to be preaching or it's going to be prayer or it's going to be a general study. Um, but what that also does is that for people who do need to reach me, they also know that afternoons for the most part, they're going to be able to get me when they need me. Um, and so that structure, uh, for me has been a vital thing. Um, and I think it has really worked in a lot of ways, uh, where it allows me to do all the things that I need to do, um, in the most effective way. So that's been a huge thing. Um, I think the second thing, you know, over time, and this isn't a daily thing, but every Friday at noon is my, um, time's up pencils down moment. So regardless of where I am in my sermon prep, regardless of what other work is waiting for me, Friday noon is time's up pencils down. And so I literally, when it turns noon, I close my computer and that's it. And so the rest of Friday afternoon is, uh, just some Sabbath practices for me, um, that I've tried my best to guard, uh, some seasons much better than others. 
but that has become one of these must do. Whereas before it was like, Oh, I have to keep Sabbath. It's a good thing. But now it's like, Oh, if I miss a Sabbath, I don't know how my next week is going to go. I could go off the rails. I don't know how emotionally or energy wise I'm going to be able to make it. And so uh, that has become kind of a vital practice of solitude, sometimes prayer, but a lot of times it's just taking a nap or it's going for a run or it's going to the gym or it's cooking food because that's something I like to do when I have the time to do it. Uh, so I'd say those two are maybe the main things that come to mind. If I were coming to your house for dinner, what would be like your go-to dish that you would make that you would make for me? Mm. Like what's your best as a cook? Give me your best shot. What would you throw down? Oh, boy. So the first one that comes to mind is a Korean-style pork shoulder. Um, So that's what I make every year for Thanksgiving for the family. So we've kind of moved away from turkey. I know it's, you know, it's it's like culturally unacceptable, but we've moved away from the turkey and we go with pork on Thanksgiving. Um, So that would be the first one that comes to mind. Oh, good. (laughs) I did notice. Uh, that, you know, I looked you up before the show and, uh, lover of pork and pork like products is part of your bio on Twitter. This is part of my bio, Twitter bio. This is true. Which is Abraham Cho. If you want to follow someone who is a lover of pork and pork like products. Yeah. I recently had created an entire like buzz around the return of the McRib, which skipped over New York City. And so I was quite devastated by that. And so I'd, <laughs> congregants kind of coming up to console me about the lack of McRibs in New York City. <laughs> um, so that's one that comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind is we recently bought my, my wife's a big Instapot person and, uh, there's a new Instapot that allows uh, you to cook by this process called sous vide, which is a way to control the temperature that meats are cooked so that they're cooked perfectly all the way through. Uh, so that's kind of become our new thing to try to figure out how do you cook the steak sous vide? So it's perfectly kind of medium rare. And then how do you give that a sear inside of a New York city apartment? How much can you sear it, sear it before the um, fire alarms go off? So we're getting pretty good at perfecting that over time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. I like it. Uh, so what does, uh, that's a perfect segue into um, what, is, what does leadership in your home look like? Mm. Yeah, so I've got four kids. Uh, my daughter's oldest. She's 13. She's going to be going, uh, she's in eighth grade going to high school next year. And then I have three boys um, who are 12, 8, and 6. Um, so leadership in the home, you know, I've been thinking so much about this missional living type thing that one of the things that I've done is I've sought to figure out how do we as a family embody this? How do we live this out? So if we want to, as a church, figure out how to empower and kind of activate people to do this in a way that's not overwhelming in a way that, you know, any Christian could do, I was like, well, I've got to be able to, I got to be doing this. I need to know what it's like from the inside out. And so, you know, we've been trying to really focus in on some of our friends in the building just to open up our life to them, being more intentional, have more dinner parties, like just practice more hospitality locally. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've done is we've tried to invite our kids into that process to say, you know, are there a couple of friends in our building that um, you really, you know, that you really like, that you, God has really kind of made a connection for you and you like hanging out with them. And, you know, just telling them like, anytime you want them to come over, the answer, unless is almost always going to be yes. 
um, because, you know, God sent us here. We're missionaries wherever God sends us. And so he just asked us to open up our lives to the people that he put us near. And that's the people in our building. And so we've been trying to have some of those conversations. Um, it's a little bit di- tough because the kids are at different stages. So, you know, my daughter's closest friends are at school. They're not going to be in the building. So what do we do with that? I'm not quite sure. The younger ones have more friends within the building. Um, but trying to, for our kids to, to embody to them, like this whole lifestyle of being on mission is not a unique thing. It's not a special thing that only some Christians do. Uh, to follow Jesus is to follow him on mission wherever you go. So I think that's been a theme that we've thought a lot about um, for the kids. I think the other thing that, you know, when we think about leadership in the home, a theme that comes up a lot is just emphasizing to our kids, Christians are always going to be joyfully different from the world. So because of what we, because we believe God has spoken, because we believe God has walked amongst us and died and rose again, we're just going to be nonconformists. Like we're going to, there are things that we're going to do and believe that are going to be so different from your friends. Um, but we do it joyfully. We don't do it because we simply because we have to, we don't do it and feel embarrassed about like we're joyfully different. And most people, when they see someone who's joyfully different and they're just kind of confident in being joyfully different, that's really attractive. And so a lot of times when we talk to our kids about, you know, the ways that a Christian would live differently than, you know, let's just say an average Manhattanite, uh, we try to use that kind of framework with them to help them to see this difference is not something to be embarrassed about. It's actually strength. It's a beauty. It's part of, you know, diversity and that sort of a thing. Um, and so for the older kids, I think that's kind of sinking in a little bit. Um, but even for us uh, as parents to say, yeah, we're going to be joyfully different and that's okay. Not everything we do is going to be uh, understandable to somebody who uh, doesn't have any kind of connection to the Christian faith. Uh, I love that. Joyfully different. Every church must be equipped to respond well in the initial stages when learning about instances of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And that's why the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway, and ERLC partner together to create Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. This training curriculum consists of a handbook, 13 uh, enhanced video sessions that brings together top experts from various fields to help volunteers and leaders understand and implement the best practices for handling a variety of abuse scenarios at church, school, or in your ministry. You can access these videos and this training and this book all for free at churchcares.com. All right. So uh, that's what you currently, you know, talk to your kids about. What what would you tell your 20-year-old self about um, leadership and preparing to lead? What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Mm. The first thing that comes to mind, um, so I'll back up a little bit, you know, five or six years ago, I, um, basically was diagnosed with depression and that was an outgrowth. I think of a lot of just different things in my, you know, just childhood growing up. My father passed away when I was, uh, in college and that sort of thing, right around 20 actually. Um, and coming out on the other side of that, you know, before that I was always just kind of like, eh, you know, 
you love Jesus, Jesus loves you, now just get to work, um, was kind of like, like my mindset. And maybe some of that is like my immigrant upbringing or something like that. But having um, kind of hit this place of real genuine exhaustion and burnout, and then also this depression, um, I think I would tell my 20-year-old self that the inward journey is vital for the outward ministry. Um, or another way that I put it is that the depth of your inward ministry or the depth, the, the depth of the inward work that you're doing in your own heart and soul is exactly coextensive to the health of your reach or your impact as a leader, that they're directly related. They're mirror images almost. Um, and that if you're not on that inward journey to understand where are the wounds, where are the fears coming from, where are, um, the insecurities, where, where's the shadow side of who you are, that if you're not doing that work internally, if you're not dealing with your shadow side, everybody else around you is, and they're just not telling you <laughs> uh, what it is that they're dealing with. And so that's just been my experience over the years. And so for me, like when I think about growing as a leader, one of the first things I start to think about is the depth of my inward, inward journey with Jesus. Have I brought Jesus into these wounds and these fears and these insecurities? And, and have, have I brought Jesus into that and allowed the gospel to he begin that process of healing in those places? Because if I'm not, I'm projecting those shadows to the people um, that are around me, the people that I love, people who are following me. And that took 20 years to figure out, 15 years to figure out. And so if this 20-year-old self would actually listen I think that's probably the main, the main message that I want to get across. Very good. Well, uh, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your uh, ministry with us, your, your life with us. And, um, you know, each one of these is still unique. I mean, we're, I don't know what episode this is now, 400 and something, mm. I think. And uh, it's really, it's, really refreshing and and fascinating that um i hope our listeners get as much out of these conversations as i do um because you know the whole idea of being joyfully different uh, as an example is something that you know i will take and implement i really am so thankful for so many um great and godly leaders uh that we get to talk to because there's so many things that um i've actually implemented myself and i hope our listeners find that too. So thanks for spending uh, time with us today, Abe. And um, guys, thanks for listening. And hop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review.